Happy Saturday this week in our podcast about the mysterious disappearance of Theodosia Burr Alston, the daughter of Aaron Burr. One of the things we talked about was uh, that Aaron Burr got into this bizarre scheme to invade Mexico and take over the western part of the United States territory and make it all his personal empire, leaving it for Theodosia to reign over as empress after his own death. So that is way too interesting a story to just bring up and then not really get into or say much about. But fortunately, previous hosts, Katie and Sarah, have already talked through all of the details. So we're just going to share that episode with you and you will get all caught up. So here we go. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. Candace and I did a podcast called Alexander Hamilton versus Aaron Burr about their fateful and fatal duel. So we won't talk too much about that here. But the upshot is that Hamilton is killed and Vice President Burr was the one who did it. He was charged with murder in New York and New Jersey, but it never went to trial. And he is the subject of our podcast today. What happened after that duel? So while his murder charges don't ever go to trial, in March 1805, he has to leave the political sphere. He's just too contentious a figure at this point. And his speech actually makes the Senate cry, but his career's over. He's also in debt, and he doesn't have a whole lot of friends left. What he needed was to start over. And what better place for a new life than the West? So to give this all a little context, Thomas Jefferson advocated a policy of expansionism when Napoleon gave up on French influence in North America and offered the Louisiana Territory for sale. Jefferson was all over it. And what that meant was that this huge uncharted space and all the people in it weren't too sure about being part of the rest of America. And there were a lot of people there already. There were not only Indians, but Spain still has a hold on a lot of the parts that touch the border. So there are a lot of boundary disputes. Jefferson wanted to buy Florida from Spain, and some people thought we should just take Spain's land by force, including Mexico. But, of course, not everyone was a fan of expansionism, and there was talk of the people in the Southwest of secession. So we have an opening here, a potential opportunity for somebody to take over and rule amidst all this chaos. So Burr hatches a plan, and this plan may have started even before his duel, but the basic idea was that he wanted to wage a private war against Spanish-held territories, possibly also New Orleans uh, and Mexico, and he would have a southwestern empire that he could rule, this republic independent of the eastern U.S., He'd be an emperor. But to put this plan into action, he's got to have help. So how about James Wilkinson, who is the guy who makes a very sketchy appearance in our podcast on Meriwether Lewis? Not a good guy. And implicated in Lewis's death. And especially to have this guy as your number two, a very uh, unfortunate beginning. So Bernie Wilkinson from the Quebec campaign, and by this point, he was the highest ranking officer in the entire army. So in this respect, he sounds like a pretty good guy to have on your side, a good number two. He also shared Burr's views on why it might be pretty great to separate the East and the West, and he saw an opportunity for himself. He could have a very good life in Burr's empire 
as number two, but there was another side to it. Wilkinson was a Spanish spy. So if things didn't work out with Burr, he would have the chance to turn him in to the U.S. government and also leak his plans to the Spanish, thus, you know, winning their goodwill. So it was a win-win for Wilkinson. While he's pulling together his dream team here, Burr also contacts Andrew Jackson, who is very anti-Spain, and the politician Jonathan Dayton. And he also gets in touch with the minister to the U.S. from Britain, Anthony Mary, and proposes a deal of sorts that for ships and money, he'd help them take the West. So he gives word that his intention is to buy a million acres of land in the Louisiana Territory, perhaps as a bit of a cover for the mission he's about to undertake, or perhaps because he wanted a million acres of the Louisiana Territory. But he leaves in 1805 and begins his campaign very subtly. He has letters of introduction to influential people. He attends balls and banquets and starts winning people over with his charisma before he starts hinting at what he's after, what this mission is. And he also slowly begins recruiting young men for his plan, men were, who were looking to better themselves, because, of course, the West at this time is so uncertain, they need to find their way. So he lets them keep their independence and is very quiet about what his plans are. So yeah. even his followers don't really know what he's up to. And he he amasses hundreds of these young men who are interested in his ideas. And he also befriends a rich Irish immigrant named Harmon Blennerhossett. Pretty who, good name. Yeah, definitely a good name. Blennerhossett gives him money and also gets the Mexico Society on his side, which is a pretty self-explanatory organization <laughs> there. They are a group of people interested in accumulating Mexico. So as far as this mission goes, Britain doesn't come through and people have started to get wind of what Burr is up to because, of course, he's talking to so many people. He's not exactly hiding what he's trying to do. Perhaps he thought he would be successful and could gain enough support that it wouldn't be an issue. But little things start appearing in the press about what he's doing. Luckily for Burr, Spain comes through in an unlikely way, unlike Britain. They step up their border conflicts with the U.S., and this means that Wilkinson, as commander of the army, would end up in Louisiana, and then he and Burr could conquer Spanish territory in the name of the United States, but then take it over. So you, it brings the number one and the number two in this conspiracy together. So Burr's plan begins in earnest in August 1806 when he and his men assembled at Blennerhossett's Island in the Ohio River, which is going to be their home base. And his messenger says that 7,000 men will be on the way. So at this point, his intentions are clearly not a secret. He's talked to so many people and they in turn have communicated to higher up. Yeah, even the the federal government is aware of what he's doing because he's talked to so many influential politicians. So Jefferson isn't entirely in the dark. And Wilkinson soon betrays Burr. He hands over what's known as the cipher letter in 1806 to Jefferson and also alerts the Spanish to what's going on in New Orleans. And the cipher letter says, in part, I have obtained funds and have actually commenced the enterprise. Things are starting for real. And this is October 1860. And in November 1860, Jefferson tells the country that there's a conspiracy in the works. 
and that the conspirators should be caught. But he's still not directly calling out Burr. He figures his name is going to come up eventually on its own. And blind item from page six. Yeah, blind item from Jefferson. In December, Blennerhassett's place is raided by a militia, and they also arrest a bunch of men and took their boats and their guns. So when Burr finally comes to meet his men, the force is greatly diminished, not what he had been expecting at all. But he keeps going, and he heads... Yeah, Again, this would have been not the, have. the point to turn back for sure. He keeps going, though. He heads down the Mississippi, and he's planning to meet with Wilkinson in New Orleans. But after that, who knows what he's going to do? But what he didn't know was that at this point, he was wanted for arrest. And when he lands in the Bayou Pierre in Louisiana in January 1807, he sees a newspaper and sees that his cipher letter is printed in full in the paper and that he's wanted. So he doesn't have any men. His arrival in Louisiana isn't a surprise because, of course, Wilkinson has told everyone. Well, and the newspapers have <laughs> alerted everyone. So he turns himself in, but then flees to Alabama. On February 19th, 1807, he's arrested on the road to Pensacola and taken to Fort Stoddart. But it's kind of weird because, after all, he is a former vice president and a colonel. And it still seems like he's working on his plan. He's He has not entirely given up yet. Yeah, he's talking to locals, trying to figure out who hates the Spanish. And so the uh, local officials get a little concerned about this and decide, let's send him back to Washington. So on the way back to Washington, he's treated really well, despite being under armed guard. He's allowed to keep brandy with him, and he keeps a knife and pistols. This which, is a bad idea. You know, who lets their prisoner keep pistols? But they get taken away because he does kind of try to escape in South Carolina. And when he's caught again, he cries. Things are not looking good for Burr. And the group gets a message from Jefferson telling them to go to Richmond instead of Washington. So they take him there. He arrived on March 26th, 1807. And in April, he went on trial for treason and high misdemeanors. And this is the trial of the century, as so many trials are, of course. <laughs> and they're always, as we noted earlier, they're always in the beginning of the century. Yeah, no, it's never in the 70s or something where you're like, this is the trial of the century. Um, so Chief Justice John Marshall calls it the most unpleasant pleasant case which has ever been brought before a judge in this or perhaps any other country which affected to be governed by laws. Strong words. Another really bold claim. But on the side of the defense, we have Edmund Randolph, who is Washington's secretary of state and lawyer Brandy Bottle, also known as Luther Martin, whose strategy is to paint Jefferson as someone who is just blinded by a personal vendetta against Aaron Burr. So and it's actually pretty effective, too, because Jefferson had basically said there was incontrovertible evidence against Burr, and there's not. So when you take little quotes like that and throw them in front of a jury... It doesn't make Jefferson it look does great. Start to look like a personal problem between two men. So the public's appetite for this trial is insatiable and the papers blare headlines about it every day. But the trial is really odd, understandably, because so many of the people involved are <laughs> just plain liars or they're double agents and the co-conspirator stories don't match up. And even his followers don't know what Burr's plans are. So that's nobody, probably the big part. Yeah. Nobody 
has the the same story. Well, and did he even have a master plan or was he just sort of, you know, flying by the seat of his pants? We don't know because he never told anyone. And a lot of his papers were lost at sea along with his daughter Theodosia in 1813. So it's likely we'll never know. And there wasn't much evidence either. I mean, you mentioned this just a second ago, but uh, it does come up looking a little like a personal problem instead of this grand treason case. So Burr is acquitted on September 1st, 1807, and Marshall's own opinion on the case took three hours to read. And he said that a treason charge required two witnesses to an overt act of force or violence against the government, which was a very strict definition, a very strict reading of the definition of treason in the Constitution. And the evidence simply wasn't there. So Burr was off the hook, but he wasn't off the hook with the American public. He was being burned in effigy. He's still so, not a popular guy. <laughs> no. So he headed off to Europe to become an expat, as people in trouble often do. But his reputation was completely ruined even there. He was kicked out of England and Napoleon wouldn't let him into France. So he returned to the U.S. in 1812 and There is no respite for him even here. My favorite quote is from an article by Aaron Wellborn for American Heritage. His name was besmirched by both Federalist and Republicans, usually for its besmirching effects. (laughs) Touché. There's one career still open to Burr. He becomes a lawyer and he pretty much stays off the radar and dies at 80 with no descendants. And as for Wilkinson, it was during the War of 1812 that people discovered that he was actually a spy, but he was acquitted and not punished too. So he can live on to have sketchy roles in future podcasts. (laughs) But the Aaron Burr conspiracy so fascinates us. We've gotten so many requests for this, I can't even tell you. Because we know so little about it. We don't even know what this conspiracy really is. And there's the debate over whether what he did really was treason or just in the spirit of American enterprise. There's the question of whether he had this big plan or was just sort of playing it by ear. And we have the mystery of this man who's defined by only two events in his life, this fatal duel with Alexander Hamilton and a controversial trial. And, of course, the romantic notion that perhaps our answer lies in a chest at the bottom of the ocean. So that about wraps it up for Burr. But if you have any more historical conspiracies you'd like us to investigate, you should email them to us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And we also take suggestions through Twitter at Mist in History and through our Facebook fan page. So be sure to join those. And as always, please check out our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Hey, since uh, these episodes that we're sharing are past classics, uh, we have some updated information that will supersede the contact stuff you've heard before. If you want to email us, our email address is historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And you can find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. You can also find us at mistinhistory.com. And you can visit our parent company, House of Works, at howstuffworks.com. 